A reading from Romans. Moses writes concerning the righteousness that comes from the law, that the person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. The scripture says no one who believes in him will be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek the same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But who are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to, pro to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Hi, everybody. For my final three sermons here at Emmanuel, I've decided to preach on the assigned readings for each Sunday from Paul's letter to the Romans. I don't know if it's still the case, but when I went to seminary, you could choose as an elective to take a course on any of Paul's letters, but you were flat out required to take a course on Romans. In order to be a Lutheran pastor, you needed to work through the book in which Paul most clearly and systematically lays out his theology of justification by grace through faith, apart from works of the law. Or to put it in much less churchy language, Paul's insight into the mystery of Christian faith, what it is, where it comes from, and most importantly, how it happens, how we get it, and what then we are to do with it. Paul spends the first four chapters of his letter to the Romans telling us what an unholy and unjust mess that sin and evil have made of our world, how each and every one of us are participants in that, and how none of us can save ourselves from its deadly consequences, that we are in bondage to sin, as our confession says, and cannot free ourselves. Paul then spends four more chapters telling us what God has done in and through Jesus Christ to do that saving work we cannot do for us, to conquer sin and death and to free us from its dominion, and to grant us a new and eternal life in Christ that begins now and comes to fulfillment in the life to come. Paul ends that section of his letter with the powerful words that we heard last Sunday, saying that because of God's Easter victory in raising Jesus from the dead, nothing in all creation can now separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then, for chapters 9, 10, and 11, the section in which today's reading comes, Paul turns, the turns to the mystery of how that saving work of God becomes a living faith in me and in you and the even deeper mystery of why, for some people, it doesn't.
Why do some people believe? Even find it easy to believe and trust in God's existence and power and love and that Christ is risen indeed and that is a real presence now in life through the Holy Spirit? Why do some people find that easy to believe and others do not, including many who, though they very much want to, simply find that they cannot count themselves as believers? How does faith in Jesus happen? And whose responsibility and fault is it when it does not? The specific mystery that Paul is concerned with in these three chapters of his letter is why so many of his own people, God's chosen people, God's covenant people, Israel, the people who held the promise and the hope of a Messiah for so many generations, why they in particular did not see and did not believe that those promises were being fulfilled in Jesus. If you read all of chapters 9, 10, and 11 in Romans, you'll see that Paul asks a series of questions, ponders a list of possible answers to this mystery of unbelief, but then pretty much rejects them all. Did the word of God fail is the first question that Paul asked. Did God turn out to be unable to keep these ancient promises that he made to Abraham and Sarah and their descendants? Or has God simply turned against his chosen people? Has God taken back the promise to Israel? Of course not, is Paul's answer to both of those questions. God can be trusted and is fully capable of fulfilling what God promises in God's own way and time. So, finding himself unable to blame God for this mystery of unbelief, Paul considers blaming humans. But that, of course, doesn't work either because he's already told us the state we're in, that our salvation cannot be left to us. Our ability to muster up enough for the right kind of faith isn't there, and he's already made it clear that we're not capable of that. How can God blame us if we just don't get it? If the living and all-powerful God wants us to believe, then how can we claim the power to resist that? And if God doesn't want us to believe, then what good is even trying? Well, these are the kind of questions that Paul is asking. And while he rejects some of the possibilities right away, like God somehow failing to keep his promises or God being somehow unable to do so, Others of those questions, Paul just lets hang in the air and doesn't really answer at all. In fact, he seems to have concluded that the answers to such questions are beyond us and will always remain a mystery and just one more paradox that we simply need to live with. We can't take credit for saving ourselves. We can't even take credit for believing that God has done that for us. It is all a gift. It is all grace. It is all God's determined coming to us to give us what we need. And of course, Paul not only articulated that mystery of faith, he really lived it firsthand. Remember, this is the guy who once felt so deeply convinced that he knew God and he knew what God wanted, to, wanted him to believe and to do, that he hunted down people who believed that Jesus was God's Messiah even going house to house to find them so that they could be arrested and imprisoned, probably worse. Paul is the same guy whose strong faith in God 
had him standing by holding people's coats while they threw stones at another man of faith called Stephen, killing him because of his Christian faith. So Paul knew better than anyone the mystery of where Christian faith comes from and to whom, and he also knew firsthand the danger of thinking you've got God all figured out. And so I think that's why, after all of his puzzling, Paul concludes in delightfully clear and simple language that faith happens not as the result of something in us that is reaching for or searching after God, but comes as something in God that searches passionately for us. That faith is something that originates with God and that enters us through our ears as a message as a promise, as good news, on its way to getting planted in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and that then emerges out of our lips, not only as a faith to be shared with others, but a faith to be deepened and confirmed within ourselves as it is verbalized and then enacted in our lives. Faith comes from God to us through the ears, through spoken promises, like those we say in worship, in the name of Christ, your sins are forgiven. Or God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Promises like those we will speak in our outdoor service today in holy baptism, saying, child of God, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit and marked with the cross of Christ forever. And the promises of holy communion. This is the body of Christ given and shed for you. Faith. Paul says, comes from what is heard. So how, he asks, are people to believe in one of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear about Christ without someone to proclaim him? And how is anybody going to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written, Paul says, quoting Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So a brief digression about feet. Before there was an internet, before television, before radio, before news could be telegraphed by wire over long distances or sent in written form even by mail, news, either good or bad, could only be shared by word of mouth. Today, people run long distances, even marathons, for exercise or for competition. But in Isaiah's day and in Paul's day, it was somebody's job to run long distances from however many miles away to bring important news to nearby towns and villages. And when it was good news that the runner brought to your ears, either from a battlefield or from a head of government, there was joy. And if that news was eagerly awaited, the sight of those feet approaching would be beautiful to see by those watching from the tower. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, that passage from Isaiah and Paul is often read at ordinations and installations of pastors, not because pastors' feet tend to be so pretty, but because this is a simple and clear image of what our calling is, a kind of parable, if you will, of the pastor's job. My goal for the last 23 years here at Emmanuel has to be, been to be that voice that gets the good news of Jesus into your ears 
so that it can be on its holy way to your heart and so that then it can emerge from your lips and be manifest in your life. This morning's gospel reading gives me another way to say all this. When the disciples are in trouble in their boat, frightened by the storm and the waves, Jesus comes to them. Even across the water, Jesus comes all the way to them. Peter thinks that maybe he can set out and meet Jesus halfway, but quickly he begins to sink. Jesus then scolds Peter for his lack of faith, but he doesn't say what faith it was that Peter lacked. Was it the faith that he too could walk on water? Is the message of this miracle that if we just believe hard enough that we can do something, well, we can. I don't think that's the message. Or did Peter simply lack the faith that Jesus would get there? That he was indeed coming all the way to his rickety boat and his fearful friends just as he was? Is the message perhaps that Peter might have been better off staying in the boat, rowing and bailing with his friends against the storm until Jesus got there and stilled it? I don't know. What do you think Paul might say? How is anyone going to proclaim him unless they are sent? I can certainly say that it has been an honor to have been the runner sent by the Holy Spirit through the education and formation process of the Lutheran Church to bring good news to listening ears for now 42 years and to many of your ears for the past 23. And it is a great joy and delight and comfort to know that next Sunday you will be voting with that same Spirit's guidance to call two people to continue and strengthen that ears to heart to lips to life work of spreading the gospel of Jesus. Hear then on this day the good news. God loves you. Jesus died for you. The risen Christ comes all the way to save you from whatever storm threatens. The Holy Spirit breathes in you whatever faith you have and calls you to deepen it by putting it into words and actions each day, finding your true life in the midst of giving yourself away as Jesus did in love for God and for neighbor. Like Paul, I don't claim to understand why some people receive that news with joy and it goes straight to their heart and comes out in words and deeds, while for others, it seems to just go in one ear and out the other. Also like Paul, I don't blame people for that and I don't blame God for it either. Like Paul, I'm willing to live with the mystery and just keep running and shouting that good news that I was sent to proclaim. Because what happens from there, like what happens from here, has always been in God's hands. Amen.